All right, now, brothers and sisters, let's open up God's word together. Mark chapter 8 today. Mark chapter 8. In our weekly trek through the book of Mark, verse by verse, we are now about halfway. Mark chapter 8, 1 through 21 is our text today. Bread has been something that has been central to my family, my entire life, and even before I was born, and I'm sure it is to yours as well if you think about it. It seems like every time we mention the grocery, we need more bread. It seems like every time we have a a really special meal, bread is a part of it, while sometimes it's not always a part of every meal. It's a big deal when we have a good loaf of bread or rolls for dinner or for a special meal. My uncle was actually a bread man. He drove a Kearns bread truck over in Glasgow for his entire life, pretty much his his job his entire life. He would get up every day long before the sun was up, and he'd go fill his truck with loaves of fresh bread, and he'd, he'd drive around town with that wonderful smell filling his truck, and he'd make all kinds of stops at country stores and groceries and stock up their shelves. My father-in-law, Jennifer's dad, is a wheat farmer. He grows other things, but his main crop is wheat. And for both of those men, bread is how they made a life for themselves and their families. Bread was absolutely essential to them. In our day, for most of us, bread is optional. It's optional. It's something that we, we like, but we can do without. You know, it's probably the reason I need to lose a few pounds, and so it needs to be more optional. But it's optional for many of us. If you go to a restaurant and they say, would you like some bread for the table? Well, maybe we would, but if we're not hungry, maybe not. Maybe we can skip that. Some people are on a low-carb or no-carb or gluten-free diet trying to avoid bread altogether. Bread is optional for many of us, but... Throughout history, for almost every human being who has lived on earth in human history, bread has been essential for life. Just like it's the main crop for Jennifer's dad, it has been the main crop all over the world for some 10,000 years. Of all the things we grow, human beings have depended on wheat the most. For almost all of human history, bread has been essential for life. And it was this way for the people in the times of the New Testament and in the times of the Bible. When you read scripture, bread is essentially food. When we talk about bread in the Bible, when you see bread mentioned, most of the time it's just talking about food in general, the things that we need to eat to survive. And so oftentimes it will say bread. So bread in scripture is the sustenance of life. Bread is life. And this is why Jesus taught us to pray Give us this day our daily bread, right? We are supposed to go to the Lord and ask him to give us the things necessary for life. And we depend on him for the things that are necessary for life. They are gifts from his hand. If you pay attention to the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see bread all over the place. Why? Well, for whatever reason, Jesus made it a central theme in his ministry and in his teaching. It comes up all the time. It seems like this man was always talking about bread. And if you do a little research, you'll find that Jesus was from a place called the house of bread. Bethlehem. That's what Bethlehem means. It means house of bread. 
And so it is no surprise to us that in his ministry he teaches using bread so much of the time, including our text today. Notice the theme of bread that goes throughout our text today as we read Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. I'd encourage you to follow along with me in your copy of Scripture. This is God's Word. Mark writes, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days, and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples, two set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? I want to take this in two parts this morning. We'll begin by looking at this miracle of Jesus feeding 4,000 people with such a small amount of food, bread in particular. And then we'll move on to looking at his interactions with the Pharisees and then with his disciples in the boat. The two portions of our sermon today are a lack of bread first and then a lack of faith second. A lack of bread and then a lack of faith. First, this lack of bread for the 4,000. Now, we've been going through Mark week by week. And some of you who have been here for most of those sermons are thinking, haven't we already seen this? This is just a rerun. We've already done this. In fact, it's just one page back in my Bible, chapter 6, where Jesus feeds the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. It was six weeks ago, if you count the number of sermons and weeks we've done it, but just back in chapter 6, haven't we already seen this? And so what is going on? Why this repeat And specifically, there's a question in our text that should surprise us because of this. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, his disciples answer him after he says, we've got to feed these people and not send them back. His disciples say, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? 
Now, what in the world are they doing? It seems impossible that these disciples could ask such a question after being with him recently when he fed 5,000 people. Don't they know? Don't they remember? And in fact, if you start to think about it, it would be impossible for them to have forgotten. He fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, something that was unheard of, unexpected, one of the most impressive miracles in all of human history. How could they forget? And so what is going on with them asking this question in verse 4? Skeptics of the Bible and the, the accuracy of our New Testaments will tell you this is proof that this is not actually a reliable source of truth, this New Testament and this Gospel of Mark, because there's no way that they would be asking such a question. Well, one of the things that they are not thinking about is that something else could be going on here. Many good Bible commentators on the book of Mark here note that the disciples here are not forgetting what happened. They don't don't not remember the feeding of the 5,000. How could they not remember? But what they are doing is they are simply refusing to presume upon Jesus' power to do another miracle. They're refusing to presume upon it. They're not saying they have no idea how a solution could be found. What they're saying is, in ourselves, we have no power to do this. In ourselves, in our flesh, by the normal means of the laws of nature, we don't have the resources to do this. But all the while, they could be saying that, hoping that Jesus will break the laws of nature, that he will do something we've seen him do before, but they're not presuming upon it, right? They're not going to assume that Jesus is going to do a miracle. They don't feel right suggesting he do one because Jesus's miracles, they understand, and we should understand as well, Jesus's miracles are moments of undeserved grace done whenever he so chooses to do them. Jesus's miracles are moments of undeserved grace, and he does them whenever he decides to whenever he pleases. There are times when he refuses. Look at verse 11. The Pharisees come asking for a sign. Do something miraculous for us. We want a sign from you. And Jesus says, no. No. Miracles are gifts of his undeserving grace, and he does them when he so chooses. The Pharisees try to pressure him into doing a miracle, but not the disciples. They are in submission to him. They believe in him. He is Lord. He is master. He decides when something like this will happen. And they have the initial seeds of faith, whereas the Pharisees, we will see in a moment, do not. But we still might be asking, you still might be asking, but why the repetition in the book of Mark? Why the repetition? Why why does this happen all over again? It's, It's pretty much the same thing, just with different numbers. Is this simply a matter of Mark recording two similar miracles that happen at two different times? Perhaps. But there is also more here than meets the eye. More here than meets the eye. Look back, if you will, with me at Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Should be just, just on the same page or just a page previous. Mark 7, 31. It tells us that at this point he is in the region of the Decapolis. He's in the region of the Decapolis. This is a Gentile region. Almost all of these 4,000 who are there witnessing this miracle, receiving bread from this miracle, they're almost all Gentiles. This is a Gentile group that he is feeding right here. Now, if you go back to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and especially if you read it from the book of John, 
John's account, you will know, you will see that that's a Jewish group that he's feeding there. Almost all Jews in the feeding of the 5,000, almost all Gentiles in the feeding of the 4,000. So there's a lesson here. There's a lesson here for us if we pay attention. We've seen this theme come up throughout the book of Mark many times already. Jew and Gentile. Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were God's people chosen from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. The Israelites, those are the Jews. Those are God's chosen people of the Old Testament. But many of us are Gentiles. I would say most of us, almost all of us perhaps, are Gentiles. We are not Jews, and yet we are now part of the family of God if we have come to him through Jesus Christ. This theme comes up all throughout the book of Mark. Jew and Gentile. When Jesus came on the scene, you understand it was, it was difficult for people who had been steeped in Jewish culture and doing things this one way for, for generations with sacrifices and festivals and Sabbath days and all the rest to all of a sudden have Jesus come on the scene and to have things start to change because it did. The old covenant The old covenant was fulfilled in Christ, and in Christ we are in the new covenant. There's a different arrangement between God and his people now that Jesus has come. But you can understand how in the first century that would have been hard to grasp for people who have been living like that for their whole lives. And so the lesson of the feeding for the 4,000 for us is this, that Jesus came not only as the bread of life, that's what he calls himself in John 6, Jesus came not only as the bread of life for Jews, But he came as the bread of life for Gentiles as well, for all of us, for the entire world. He is the bread of life, not for Jews only, but for Gentiles as well. Do you remember the Gentile woman in Mark 7, two weeks ago? The Gentile woman that comes to Jesus, begs for Jesus, will you heal my daughter? She's possessed by a demon. And Jesus initially turns her away, initially refuses her and says, no, no, we give the bread to the children first. The the Jews, the Israelites, the children of God first. And she responds to Jesus and says, yes, but, but just a crumb from the table would be enough for me. I don't need to be equal with, with a Jew. Just a crumb from the table would be enough for me, she says. It's a wonderful statement of faith in chapter 7. But here Jesus shows us it is not his intention to give the Gentiles leftover crumbs. He came to provide a feast them. He came to invite Gentiles to the table, to the feast, just like Jews, to give them both a seat at the table. He came to invite Gentiles to the banquet, and there's going to be leftovers from that feast. But Gentiles are included just like Jews are. This bread, this bread of life is for all, no matter who you are, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, black, white, something else. It doesn't matter who you are, male or female. This bread of life is for all. Notice the leftover baskets too. This is another hint that something is going on here in the feeding of the 4,000, giving us a new lesson. The leftover baskets. Jesus talked about it to his disciples in the boat in verses 19 and 20. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said 12. And the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces? They said seven. And so for the Jewish crowd, there were 12 baskets full of leftovers. And for the the Gentile crowd, there were seven. 
Now, in, in Jewish culture and in Jewish history, what's the number 12 represent? The 12 tribes of Israel, right? And in, outside of that, outside of that, in biblical history, all throughout, especially the book of Revelation, what does the number 7 represent? Completeness, fullness, or the entire world. And so, We've got to be careful not to, to find a secret code under every single number in the Bible. There's not a secret code under every single number, but I think there's good reason to believe that in these two miracles of the feeding of thousands, Jesus is showing that he is the bread of life for Jews on the one hand and for the entire world on the other hand. Not just Jews, but the entire world. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile, as Romans 1.16 says. And so there's more here than meets the eye. This is not just a random repetition of the same kind of miracle. It's intentional by Jesus, intentional by God himself. Now I want you to notice a couple other details too. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. They had been with, us, with Jesus for three days. Now some had probably brought food. But none of them would have brought enough food for three days. They were with Jesus for three days because he's teaching. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. You hear this teacher and he begins to engage your heart and your mind in a way that you've never felt them engaged before. You've never heard anything like what this man is saying. And so instead of going home, you stay. You figure out a way to camp out because I might never hear anything like this again. They are recognizing this is the one my heart was made for, right? And and they're, they're so hungry for it. They stay and they hear and they listen and they forget all about their hunger. Now, most of us know what this is like, even, even for a moment or just for a part of the day, you know what it's like to forget to eat. You know what it's like for your mind to be so engaged with something, for you to have so much to do, that all of a sudden you look up and you're like, I forgot to eat lunch. You know what that's like? Right? We know what that's like. We're so preoccupied, we, we don't even feel hungry. Our hunger doesn't register because our mind is so focused and consumed on other things. Well, their hunger, the crowd's hunger for what Jesus was giving them, overrode their hunger for physical food. Their hunger for what Jesus was giving them overrode their hunger for physical food. And so they're there for three days, and many of them have just forgotten to eat, at least for a good while. But after three days, you can imagine, many of them are starting to feel it. But Jesus had been feeding them the whole time. Jesus had been feeding them the whole time. Remember, Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. That comes from the mouth of God. That's not just poetic. That's true literally. You don't know this perhaps. Or maybe you don't feel this. You need God more than you need food. You need God more than you need food. Even if you don't acknowledge it. It is just true. It's an objective reality. You need him more than you need food. Do you know what it is like? To have your hunger and thirst for God override your hunger and thirst for physical food and physical drink. Do you know what that's like? Job knew what it was like. Job says in Job 23, 12, I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Jesus knew what this was like. If you remember in John 4, 
He's at the well talking with a Samaritan woman while his disciples have gone into town to buy food. And after they come back with food, Jesus says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And the disciples say, who brought you food? And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Because Jesus has been ministering to this woman and sharing the gospel and and revealing himself to her as the Messiah. And that has satisfied him in a way where food, food, food is so second place, so ancillary now. He has gotten this satisfaction from doing the will of God to where he is genuinely satisfied. He genuinely, in that moment, does not need to eat. Sometimes we sit in church on Sunday morning, and honestly, if we're honest, there comes a point in time where we start thinking about lunch, where we start checking our watch, and we're like, I'm, I'm getting hungry. I'm really looking forward to the meal that I'm going to get here in just a little bit. If we're honest, sometimes that happens, okay? But do you know what it's like? And some of you do. Do you know what it's like when God's word is so compelling and your heart is worshiping, truly worshiping, that getting out of here to get physical food is the last thing on your mind? Do you know what that's like? I'm not here to shame you this morning. I can't believe some of you would think about lunch during the sermon. Sometimes there's a place for that. You know, sometimes we need to be rebuked for, for things like that. But a lot of times, honestly, that's on the preacher. Can I just take that burden off of you guys? A lot of times that's on the preacher. Because the preacher is supposed to be up here serving a spiritual feast to where you're not thinking about physical food. And sometimes there's no feast at all. Sometimes it's boring. Sometimes you don't have any soul food. And so obviously we're thinking, well, when can I leave? When can I get out of here? Because this is so awful. This is boring. It's, it's not touching my heart. I'm not worshiping. But when you are, right, when you are getting out of God's presence for physical food is the last thing on your mind. We want to cultivate hearts like that. And it's, it's my job or whoever's preaching and wherever you are, any church or this church, it's our job to, to provide a feast to feed you with God's word. But we all want to cultivate hearts that when we are in the presence of God, getting out of the presence of God for food is the last thing that we are thinking of. That's what we want. Now, notice also these people, this crowd, they are living embodiments of Matthew 6.33. Matthew 6.33, do you remember this one? Matthew 6.33 says, but seek first... His kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And if you remember, in context there, Jesus is talking about all these things. They're the the physical needs of life. Food, clothing. Why are you worrying about them, Jesus says. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and God will give you all of these things. Now, these people, these 4,000, they were doing just that. They were seeking the Lord. They were seeking his kingdom. And what happened? God just took care of their their hunger. It was a miracle, but he just took care of it. They didn't know how he was going to take care of it, but they weren't thinking about that. They they were much like the birds of the field, the birds of the air. They weren't thinking about where they're going to get their food. God just gave it to them. They're living embodiments of Matthew 6.33. And so the lesson for us, brothers and sisters, is do not worry about where your food is going to come from. 
Do not worry about where you're going to get clothing or the money to get those things. Do not worry about your finances. Because if you seek first God and his kingdom, if you seek Christ, God's going to take care of all those things for you. He's going to take care of all those things for you. Jesus says in that same chapter, Matthew 6, he takes care of the birds. Aren't you much more valuable to him than birds? He's going to take care of you if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He will take care of it. He will take care of it. Look at verses 16 and 17. The disciples in the boat, after Jesus says this this thing about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, they start discussing with one another the fact they hadn't brought enough bread. And Jesus says in verse 17, he says, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? He's saying, do you not understand? I'm going to take care of you. You, You've seen me take care of the crowds. Do you not understand? I'm going to take care of you. My, My most beloved, I'm going to take care of you. Do you not yet understand? Do we not yet understand? How many of us still worry about these things? And yet, We've we've heard all of these stories of God providing. We've even seen God provide in our own lives time and time and time again. And we still worry about these things. Do we not yet understand? Are our hearts hardened? We have to be reminded week by week, day by day, that God will take care of you. Now notice also, they didn't have to leave Jesus to find satisfaction. They did not have to leave Jesus to find satisfaction. That is the lie that Satan wants you to believe. Satan wants you to believe that you have to leave Jesus to find satisfaction. Satan wants us to believe that. He is tempting us to believe that we can't find true pleasure or true satisfaction in God. We've got to go somewhere else for that. It's a lie. And billions of people have swallowed it. That you have to go somewhere else for happiness. We see it time and time again in ministry. Someone gets to the point to where they start telling themselves the only way that I can be happy is if I do this thing that is against the will of God. They've believed the lie. The only way I can be happy is if I start sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend. The only way I can be happy is if I go through with this divorce. The only way I'm going to be happy is if I give in and live that homosexual lifestyle. The only way I'm going to be happy is if I try to transition to a gender other than the one I was born with. It's a lie from Satan that you have to go away from God to find true happiness. And many of us have done it time and time again, and we've experienced the disappointment and the bitter aftertaste of trying to find happiness apart from God. It's the lie that every single one of us believe every time we sin in the moment. Maybe, maybe those lifestyle choices that I just mentioned are not you, and you're thinking, I'm glad I'm not like that. Well, every time we sin, in that moment, every time we decide to sin, we are saying, I will find happiness in giving in to temptation rather than resisting it. 
Even in this, just, just this one moment, I'm going to find happiness and pleasure in giving in to temptation rather than resisting it. Do you believe that there is more happiness to be found in resisting sin than in indulging it? We don't always believe that, do we? We haven't always believed that. And so we are praying. I am praying. I I want you to pray with me in your hearts, even right now, that God would help us to believe that there is more pleasure and satisfaction to be found in resisting sin than in indulging in it. Praying that, that God would give us that clarity and that wisdom, not just now, but in the moment of temptation. That he would forgive us for the times when we have believed this lie and that he would strengthen us against it with his truth and with the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, I want to move on and spend a little bit less time than the first point here, a little bit less time, but still spend some time here on the Pharisees and the disciples in the second half of our text and the lack of faith that we see there, the lack of faith. This one's not going to be as long as the first point, but I do want to spend time here because it's important. While Jesus' response to the crowd's lack of bread was to provide it for them, in verses 11 and 12, he refuses to provide what the Pharisees are asking for. He refuses them. The disciples are not demanding a miracle from Jesus, even though I think they know that he can fix the situation whenever he wants They are not demanding a miracle from him. They believe in him and his power. They trust him and his decision. The Pharisees, however, are demanding a sign, not because they believe, but because they want to argue with him and test him. In the Gospels, demanding a miracle is not a sign of faith. It's a sign of lack of faith. Apply that to our lives demanding a miracle from God, demanding that he prove himself, demanding that he do what we are calling upon him to do is not a sign of faith. It's a sign of lack of faith. The 4,000 Gentiles and the apostles who were not demanding a miracle got one. The Jewish religious leaders were turned away. Knowing their hearts, knowing the intention to which they were coming to him, Jesus refused the request from the Pharisees. Jesus is not in the business of defending himself to those who have already decided to harden their hearts against him. He is not in the business of defending himself. He doesn't need to defend himself to anyone. There are many who have already decided, predetermined, that they are going to harden their hearts against him, even while on the outside they are faking like evidence would convince them. When evidence would not convince them, nothing would convince them. They have decided, predetermined, to harden their hearts against Jesus and against God. The Pharisees ask for a sign because of their unbelief. And it's more than just they don't believe. Discern this from this text. It's more than that they don't believe. It's that they don't want to believe. Do you get that sense? Do you you understand that? Can you discern that from this text? They don't want to believe. They are looking for justification and confirmation of what they have already decided to think. 
They're looking for justification and confirmation of what they've already decided to think and to believe. This is a problem of human nature. Remember, when we come to the Bible, anytime we encounter the Pharisees, they're not just people who have problems different than us and I'm glad we're not like them. Their problems are our problems. Their problems are problems of human nature that we have to watch out for in ourselves. We are all susceptible to this. Instead of searching for the truth and being open to it and following it wherever it leads, you go and search for justification and confirmation to what you already think. And it's more about what you want to be true than what is true. Have you seen this in yourself before? I've seen it in myself. The clearest recent example that I can remember came during COVID, when everyone took sides on all of these issues, and then each side had the science to back up their own opinion. And so what we did was we ignored everything that went against our side, And we played up everything that supported it, right? And both sides were doing it. It's called confirmation bias. And we're all susceptible to it. The danger for us is that we start doing that with the Bible. We start doing it with God's word, where we come to the Bible not to learn or to be instructed and not to sit under God's word and submit to it, but to use it for our own purposes. We come to the Bible to find justification and confirmation of what we already have decided to believe, or we come to find ammo for the opinions we already have. That's the danger here. And so that's why Jesus is saying in verse 15, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Watch out for this. We're back to bread now. Back to bread, the leaven of the Pharisees. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Why? Well, not because of the bread they're giving out or something. Watch out for their teaching. Watch out for for their heart to rub off on you and for you to become like them. It's because they are not genuine. They are not sincere. Luke's gospel actually spells it out for us in his recorded words of Jesus. It says, Luke 12, 1, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, which is hypocrisy. That's what it says in Luke 12, 1. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, when he's talking about sin spreading in the church, he likens it to leaven or yeast. A little leaven, he said, leavens the whole lump of dough. And so be careful because sin in the church, if tolerated, can spread throughout very quickly. It only takes a little bit of sin to spread through the whole. And so the hypocrisy and the self-justification of the Pharisees can get into us if we're not careful. And a little bit of it can spread not just all over us, but to other people. Why, Why do Christians, when we take the Lord's Supper together, why do Christians traditionally use unleavened bread, bread made without yeast in the Lord's Supper? Have you ever wondered that? Traditionally, this doesn't happen everywhere, but in most places we use unleavened bread, bread made without yeast. Why? Well, one reason is because when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in the upper room with his disciples, they would have been using bread made without yeast because that was what people did at the first Passover. God told them, use bread made without yeast. Why? Because you're eating in haste, ready to go, ready to leave Egypt, and you're not going to have time for the bread to to work its way through the dough and for it to rise and then to bake it. We're going to use bread made without yeast 
right? And so on throughout history, the Jewish people continued eating the Passover like that. The Passover is actually the, the, the night before this week-long feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where people remember what they did in the Passover, and for seven days they would get all the yeast out of their house and they would eat bread made without yeast. In the Bible, yeast or leaven represents sin. It represents sin. Jesus had no sin. And so as we take the Lord's Supper together and we eat bread together, this bread represents his body broken for us, but his body had no sin. This bread has no yeast, no leaven in it. And so Jesus says, beware the leaven, the sin of the Pharisees. Watch out for it. It can spread. But he also says, this, this was confusing to me at first. He also says in verse 15, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What's that about? Why does he include Herod here? I think he's saying something particular and and something that we can take home. Herod was an ungodly pagan king. Okay, He was an ungodly pagan king. The Pharisees on the outside were the exact opposite on the outside. They were the exact opposite. They were religious leaders. They were deeply religious. Now, you you get a hint in the Gospels that these two are not so far apart as it may seem during the trial of Jesus, right? Because both of them are working toward the same evil end, right? But on the surface, they're, they're two totally different kinds of people. Herod is pagan, ungodly, completely pagan. And so on the one hand, Jesus is saying, beware of the leaven or the sin of the world. Beware of, of the danger of ungodliness and worldliness and wickedness. But on the other hand... Beware also of the hypocrisy and spiritual pride that are often present among those who would call themselves religious. It's both. You've got to beware of both. There's a danger on both sides here. And Jesus is calling us to walk the narrow road, the narrow road of sincere, heart-level faith in Christ, being unstained from the sin of the world, but also not falling to the hypocrisy and spiritual pride of Pharisees. We've got to avoid both of those things. We've got to refuse to obey outwardly while our hearts are far from him. We've got to pursue holy obedience with humility and confession of sin and repentance. We've got to stand boldly for the truth and firmly while extending grace and love to all. But in the end... In the end, the the Pharisees of the world and the Herods of the world, in the end, they will both end up in the same place. They're not so far apart as they may seem. They will both end up in the same place. And so not only, if if you want to make it into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, not only do you have to come out of the world and come out of the wickedness and the ungodliness of the world and turn to Christ. But also, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to come out from the world, and your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. So let's go back to bread for a moment. The Pharisees and the Herods of the world, they all end up in the same place. Jesus once taught that the kingdom of heaven is like a field where wheat is grown. Let me read to you this parable from Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. It'll be up on the screens behind me. It says, He put another parable before them, saying, 
The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came up and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Well, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. Until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. And so I say to you, as Jesus often said to his hearers, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Hear what Jesus is truly saying in that parable. The harvest is coming. Are you wheat or weeds? Jesus is the bread of life. He says that of himself in John 6. He is the bread of life, broken for you. So that you may feed, indeed, so that you may feast upon him. And so that having him, you may have life. Having this bread, you may have true life. You cannot have bread or food. You cannot have life without bread or food. You can't have it. You won't have life without bread or food in general. And you cannot have eternal life without the bread of life Jesus Christ, he gave his body to be broken for you so that you might have life. Come to him. Come to him. You might be asking, okay, but how do I do that? What does that actually look like practically? If you feel the pull of the Holy Spirit and you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, The Bible tells us in multiple different places that there are some things we need to do to respond to that, to respond to the gospel, or to, sometimes it calls it, obey the gospel. You have to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. That's an inner thing that happens. Faith and trust. You have to put your faith and trust in Christ. You have to repent of your sins. You have to turn from sin, forsake the life of sin that you have lived. And turn to him in faith. You have to confess him as Lord. And specifically in scripture that means confessing him before others. Confessing before others that he is now Lord of your life. You want to take him as your Lord. You want him to be your master. And then the Bible calls us to be baptized into his name. To signify our death and our resurrection. Death to self, death to sin rising to newness of life because of the new heart that God puts inside of you and the new spirit that he puts inside of you. Faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. It's how you respond to the call of the gospel and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Right now, I want to spend just a few moments, as we do each week, in silent prayer we ask you during this time to go to the Lord and to respond to him from your heart. He has spoken to you, now, now we speak to him.
in response to his word. We're going to give a few moments for all of us to do this. And then afterward, we're going to give a time of invitation to where anyone who needs to respond to God's word in a public way, perhaps like what we just talked about, people can do so during that invitation time. But first, a few moments of silent, reflective prayer. Let's pray together.